This is when it gets fun. <laughs> All righty. Everyone's favorite scripture, Genesis 4, 17, 5 through 32. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahula, and Mahula fathered Methuselah, and Methuselah fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal, Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all, of all those who play the iron pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain, and he was the forger, forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. And Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son called, called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At the time people began to call upon the name of the Lord, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years. And he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, <clears throat> for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. And Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The word of the Lord. Lucas told me right before he got up to read that this was the first time he'd ever read scripture uh, in church. So um, he was blessed with a wonderful passage to be able to read for his first time. By the way, he did a very good job. I don't know how to pronounce most of those names, so we're going to go with what you said. 
But good morning. Uh, here we go. We'll continue in the series uh, uh, in Genesis that we are in. And um, there's not a whole lot to talk about uh, as means of introduction to the sermon. There's not much in the football world worth talking about. So we're just going to go ahead and jump into the sermon. Uh, so will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you now for your word. Um, and we ask that you might attend to the proclamation of it as we have just heard it read. We ask that uh, however we find ourselves this morning, however we have come in here, uh, that we will know uh, in a few moments at the end of this time together that we have met with the living God because we are interacting with your word, which is a living and active sword. This is uh, God-breathed, and so we ask that you would breathe by your Holy Spirit new life into our hearts, minds, souls as well. We do not need to hear from the one speaking to the mic. Would you be the one that clearly speaks this morning? We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. <clears throat> well, um, one of the... Uh, one of the uh, one rule in public speaking that you uh, do not really want to break, uh, which is not a good thing to do, is, is to not really have a good introduction for your sermon. I don't have a good introduction for the sermon, mainly because there's just a lot to get to. So your introduction is the fact that you do not have an introduction. So here we go. Last week, we're just going to jump right in. Last week, we saw Cain. We saw Cain double down in his unwillingness to come clean as God was trying to draw him into repentance to come clean. We saw him leave and, and go out and settle further east of Eden. And we're told here now, as he has gone out there, that he is settling down, he has taken on a wife, and he has built a city. And immediately we have questions. <laughs> Where did he find his wife? And how did he, was there, how was there enough people to build a city? <laughs> Good questions. Now, one thing that we need to remind ourselves is that often biblical authors are not concerned with details if they don't affect the main point of what they're trying to communicate. If you think about living in the ancient Near Eastern world and when these things would have been finally written down, there's not a whole lot of space. You didn't have like a, a huge hard drive on a computer that you could write down everything you wanted to say uh, about that period of time. <laughs> you were very limited in your writing instrument. <laughs> and biblical authors are intentional about what they write and what they communicate. So the first thing I would just say, anytime we come to Scripture, and you, you, can, we'll find, you can find this in the New Testament as well, especially around Jesus' life. I mean, we have his birth. Then it fast-forwards 12 years. What was he doing between birth and 12? Then it fast-forwards again to 30 years. What's, the point is, is that biblical authors have a particular intention in mind when they're communicating. And so if there are details that we would have liked to have had and they're not there, they must not be contributing to the author's point. So let me say that. Let me also say, and this is sp uh, uh, solely speculation, I don't think it's that unusual or that hard to imagine that if Adam really lived as long as he did, <laughs> he could have birthed a lot of children, they could have birthed a lot of children, and they could have birthed a lot of children. 
so much so that over a course of 900 years, and again, we don't have a specific timeline here, but it's not out of the realm of possibility just to imagine, again, speculation, going past scripture here, so don't, don't hold me to this, but it's just reasonable that one scenario is over 900 years, you could have enough people to build a city. Maybe not New York, but in the ancient Near Eastern world, nobody was thinking a city could ever possibly be the size of New York, not even Madison. But in the biblical days, a city would have simply been, in the ancient Near Eastern world this time, a city would have simply been a place where people have gathered together, most likely with a fortified wall protecting them, and enough people to simply be able to start doing commerce together. That's what the writer would have had in mind as he is writing about Cain starting a city. And so here we see the beginning of specialization in various fields and professions. You notice, you saw here, as the passage was being read, we see Cain's city, Enoch, named for his son, which means beginning or inauguration or something along that line. We see the city's food source being solidified through Jabal, or Jabal, I'm not sure how you pronounce that. We see music and the arts initiated through his brother, Jubal, <laughs> that's how you say it. We see metallurgy started through Tubal-Cain. And despite this all coming from the vision and the hand and the lineage of Cain, who is here, again, because the consequences of his murdering his brother, just reading this, we have to say this is a very positive development. <laughs> This is a good thing. This is wonderful. This is beautiful to see creativity, to see professions being initiated. One writer speaks of this building of a city as a kind of cultural gardening. I like that. Building a city, a type of cultural gardening. Because a city is a place, whether it's New York, whether it's Madison, that the best of, you name the field, come to, right? The best in finance, the best in arts, the best in architecture, the best in law. And I may have shared this before, but as I ministered in, in a church and, and we had musicians in our congregation who came to New York wanting to become a professional musician in the city of New York and coming from places where they were by far the best <laughs> in their profession, playing a violin or a flute or a cello, whatever. They were the best in their community. To their horror, when they come to New York City <laughs> and they come into Penn Station or Grand Central Station and then they are headed into the subway, to their horror, they find other musicians in the subway playing for simple change who are better than they are. <laughs> it's a shock experience. But it's what causes, and that's for various fields in, and various professions, what it causes, it causes you to work harder. <laughs> it, it brings out more creativity. It, it causes you to work harder and invest more. It, it's, it can be a good thing. And that's a city. It's a city that Cain has built. It's a place where people come where 
God's commission and his cultural mandate to humanity gets carried out. And even by those that don't bend their knee to Yahweh, unbelievers, because they bear his image, they can't not (laughs) fulfill his cultural mandate. And this is to be celebrated, and thus far in the text, so this, in, at this point in the text, there's nothing negative noted at all about cities. It's only a positive commentary by the Bible regarding cities, and we shouldn't be surprised that the Bible has a positive view on cities. Because the reason for that, again, is that the creation of culture and societies and cities was where this whole thing was going from the very beginning when it started in a garden. When God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, be creative, work the ground, all of that is happening. And it's for that reason that the Dutch theologian Abraham Abraham Kuyper once said, there's not a thumb's width, that's the appropriate translation, you've heard this quote before, there's not a thumb's width in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. This is mine. All of it. Playing the lyre and the pipe and the violin and the trombone and the piano. Crafting tools out of bronze and iron and software technology. Medicine. Education. Jesus says it's all mine. So human civilization of this present world started off in a garden, but as I know you saw when Matt was preaching through Revelation, ends in a city. That's where the narrative, that's where the story is going. Jesus himself is going to bring the new Jerusalem with him from heaven to earth. But that's not to say that there will not be issues in the city. (laughs) That's not to say that there won't be issues when human beings get together. And that's because we are fallen human beings. (laughs) Yes, we still have the image-bearing mark on us as human beings. We don't lose that. Sin doesn't destroy that. But it's now a mixed bag as we are fallen image bearers. And so just as there is good and wonderful image bearing happening and flourishing as God's image bearers gather together with a common cultural pursuit in Cain's city, there's also sadly an extension and furthering of sin and evil and injustice. So for instance, in verse 19, we see the introduction of polygamy. Something that throughout the rest of Genesis will will come up again and again, but it's never seen in a good light, and it always has disastrous consequences whenever it arises. And so through polygamy, we see the roots of societal oppression start with one individual pursuing his selfish sexual desires. But that's just the beginning of Lamech's unjust actions. Look at verses 23 and 24. 
Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me. A young man for simply striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. This is Lamech's response to being crossed by another human being. The introduction of violence last week that we saw with Cain is now being magnified and multiplied in Lamech. He's proud, even boasting about his violence, about his grudge, about his bitterness, about his pursuit of being right and being the sole arbiter of retribution. There'll be no possibility for forgiveness in Lamech's economy. But as much as Lamech's violence stands out to us from a distance and seems foreign to us personally in our personal experience, I would make the case, I would suggest, and I think the Bible makes the case, that that same root of bitterness that fully blooms in Lamech's life still can find its way into our own hearts. You see, when you and I are wronged, when we are hurt, when we are criticized, when our high opinion of ourselves is threatened, you and I may not initially, hopefully, (laughs) lash out and murder our accuser and go on boasting about it. (laughs) But what the author is showing us here between chapter 3 and chapter 4 of Genesis is the progression of the grasp that evil and sin and now bitterness has on the human heart. It is why God exhorted Cain in chapter 3 to be cognizant of the sin that's crouching at his door and exhorts him to master it. He still does so with us today. It's why Jesus says if you hate in your heart, you've already committed murder. You're interacting with an individual as if you wished they were dead. That's what Jesus is saying. And so what's in our heart today is really no different than what was in the heart of Lamech here. We have the same balled up acorn of bitterness often in our hearts. We just lack the same unrestrained opportunity that Lamech had for that acorn to fully grow into a tree of violence. So what's going on here? Is there an explanation for why evil has progressed this much? Perhaps something's missing. And the author continues, verse 25. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And then verse 26, to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. What had Cain done? What was he most concerned about? What was motivating him to build his city? 
and Lamech? What was his motivation for such violent reactions to his reputation being tarnished? They wanted what you and I want, left to our own sinful, fallen selves, to make a name for ourselves, to see our name lifted up, to have our name recognized, to be somebody, to be right, and to make sure that others know we are right. But in the midst of this brokenness that we see Lamech living out, we actually see some great faith and hope being birthed. Again, end of 26, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. People began to call on the name of Yahweh. That is a, that's a beautiful statement right here. After all that has happened, in the weeks past, we've seen possible, we've noted, possible subtle glimpses of faithful responses by our first parents after their rebellious act and disobeying God's command. But here, however, we have a full-blown, wonderful statement of faith. <laughs> and there's nothing subtle about the statement. You see, in Cain's city... In New York, in Madison, we see all of the wonder and beauty and creativity of what can happen when a lot of people get together and generate culture together. It's a beautiful thing. But it can't save them from themselves. It can't save us from the wayward bent that's within all of us. What is necessary is to relinquish our need to be seen as right. What is necessary is a pursuit of and a calling upon a name that is greater and worthy of being fully and wholly esteemed and praised and recognized than our name. And so now the author is telling us there's now going to be a line drawn in the sand. Those that will make it their life pursuit to make a name for themselves and those who humbly pursue the honoring of the name of Yahweh. Those that recognize the human need to praise and worship his name alone. Now, we have noted this before, but recall, prior to the fall, there's no command to praise God. It's not there. We noted, actually, that it was a human being. The first praise that we see in all of the Bible is one human being to another, Adam to his wife when God brings her to him. And have you ever thought that it seems a little odd? Does it seem a little odd to you that God commands, actually, not just ask, commands people to praise him, to bring him their praise. From a human's perspective, it seems a little narcissistic, doesn't it? <laughs> that a being, a personal being, would demand that other beings praise him. I mean, is he just insecure? Does he need a regular little boost, a little ego boost? 
No. See, praise that you and I bring to God is really not for him at all. God doesn't forget who he is. He's well aware of his majesty and his glory. He's not cosmically insecure. Rather, praise is for us. Calling on the name of Yahweh is necessary for our own souls as creatures, as humans created in his image. It's necessary for our spiritual and emotional flourishing to properly and constantly recognize and celebrate the creator-creature distinction. It's good for our soul. It's why if you are a follower of Jesus this morning and call Res Pres your spiritual home, it's why Sunday mornings at 1030 are so important. And why even I will say it, being on time is important. (laughs) Not because there's anything intrinsically sacrosanct about being in this particular place, but because it's the one opportunity that you specifically is presented to you specifically regularly each week at the same time in the same place for you to minister to your own soul by recognizing You are the created, and he's the creator. For you and I to worship and praise our God, for you and I to be in the presence of others who desperately also need the opportunity as well to call on the name of the Lord once again on a regular basis. Because at the end of the day, after all, that is what Res Prez is called to be. A community calling on the name of the Lord. To be that city in the city of that community in the city of Madison. A people calling on the name of the Lord and inviting others to join them in that act. Jesus tells his followers in Matthew 19, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. That's what you are, Res Press. You're a city on a hill. You're a different kind of city. You're a city within a city. You're called to be a community, a culture even, that both celebrates the goodness and wonder of Madison, yes, but also lives out in full view of Madison what it looks like to call on the name of the Lord in all things to proclaim in word and deed that true and full human flourishing can only happen when proper perspective and allegiance to Yahweh and his son Jesus Christ is in place. So as a follower of Jesus, you're here in Madison not for the reasons most others move to Madison to make a name for themselves. You're here to magnify the wonder and beauty of God's name throughout all arenas of culture. It's why Jesus says, let your light so shine before Madison that they see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And we might add, and call on the name of Yahweh. 
And furthermore, according to Jesus, there's one arena that is especially vital to that mission. We are called to as his followers. Because what we're seeing here in Genesis 4 and 5 is basically a tale of two cities. (laughs) One, where the goal is to make a name for yourself. And what therefore leads to vengeance disunity (laughs) but then the hope to see that there will be those that will call upon the name of the Lord and show a different way in John 17 a passage we've quoted before Jesus is on his way to the cross and he prays I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world He has lived out, Jesus knows he has lived out what it looks like to truly call on the name of the Lord in full view of those around him. And then he continues. He prays for his people. He prays for Rez Prez in the city of Madison that they might be one. Even as you and I are one. But why? To what end? He reiterates it twice further. That they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And here it comes. So that, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then he continues. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me. And love them even as you loved me. Why is unity so important to Jesus among his people? Because it's the most palpable way that the church demonstrates that there is another way, there's an alternative way than the Lamic approach <laughs> to respond to others when we are crossed. You see, you and I currently live in a Lamech-inspired cancel culture. (laughs) Lamech was the original cancel culturalist. You wrong me. Now, I may not physically kill you, but I'll do my best to contribute to your societal death, (laughs) your commercial death, your business death your political death. Now, there is certainly a time and place for retributive justice. Don't get me wrong. Don't hear what I'm not saying. There's a time to call out injustice. Yes. But the Christian, the follower of Jesus, has another outlet, has another tool at his disposal. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. A tool that's more transformational and earth-shattering. And Jesus says that forgiveness is necessary in the church because without it, our mission of being salt and light to the watching world, Rez Prez's mission to be a salt and light to Madison is in vain if we aren't an altar community an altar city in how we deal with our differences. Jesus has a lot of hard sayings. 
Jesus says a lot of very hard, difficult things. Peter once wanted to know, in a conversation with Jesus, he wanted to know, what are the limits? What are the boundaries on forgiving others? <laughs> and I think Peter thought he was probably doing pretty well when he suggested maybe seven times. After all, that's far more than the scribes and religious lawyers and scholars called for. But Jesus responds, I think, and most scholars agree, with this Lamech cancel culture in mind, when he responds to Peter and says, not sevenfold, but seventy-seven. Because whereas Lamech was demanding vengeance, 77-fold, Jesus looks to his followers and says, I want your forgiveness to be just as extent, <laughs> extensive and magnified as Lamech's vengeance was. Not seven. 77 times. Now, I don't know about you. I don't like to forgive that much at all. 77 times? Seriously? That's how much grace you want me to extend? Jesus, you don't understand what this person did to me. If you really knew what happened, you would not ask of that of me. Jesus says, no, I know. I know. 77 times. And he wasn't being rhetorical. <laughs> now, there's a lot I see that we're up against the clock. There's a few things that I want to say that forgiveness wasn't. Maybe we'll come back to that. Because there are misunderstandings of what forgiveness is. One of it's meaning that forgiveness pretends that the wrong didn't actually happen. It's not forgiveness. We don't have time to really go into the, what forgiveness isn't. <laughs> because I see the clock. How is this forgiveness even possible? How is it possible to be an alternate city than the city, the, the, the DNA that Lamech was putting into his great-grandfather's city? How might it be possible to be an alter city in Madison and live out a life of unifying, forgiving community in its full view in a way that leads to others crying out and calling on the name of the Lord? Well, for me... What helps me is going back to the scene at the cross where Jesus was wronged. And if you were this morning and, and not a follower of Jesus and wondering if these things can be true, I would, I would argue that you would be very hard-pressed, whatever you think about Jesus, you would be very hard-pressed to find a greater miscarriage of justice and an act of injustice against one individual person than what happens at the cross. And there, as Jesus is dying on the cross, of everything that's happening in the spiritual realm <laughs> that Jesus is doing to pay our debt, <laughs> that we might have eternal life in perfect reconciling peace with his Father, that's all happening. Yes. 
But Jesus on the cross, as he's looking out at those of those who are putting him to death, who have no right to do it, who he's experiencing, he's on the victim end of being absolutely unjustly to the max (laughs) treated, looks at all of them and prays to his father, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. They don't really know what they're doing. The most tragic moment of injustice is countered (laughs) with the most beautiful moment of mercy and grace and forgiveness. They don't know what they're doing, Father. Forgive them. Jesus is there showing others who bear the image of God You and me, the most profound, beautiful, earth-shattering response one could give in a time of and in receipt of cosmic injustice. And he was showing and completing finally the task that's hinted at in verse 29, where it says, sorry, 29 of of, of chapter 5, where it says, Lamech lived 182, he fathered a son, he called his name Noah, saying that out of the ground that Yahweh has cursed, this one shall bring us relief or rest from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Noah's name sounds like the Hebrew word for rest. And what Jesus is doing on the cross is he's completing the task that you and I, when he says to us, all who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest, he is able to finally, fully and wholly offer us that rest. Rest from all the brokenness, all the brokenness and fallenness of this world, but also rest from our sin, from all that causes us to try to make a name for ourselves, we can rest because of what he has done on our behalf from that treadmill, that, that ongoing pursuit of making a name for ourselves. He offers us rest even from the root of all bitterness that starts in our heart. And he does so, and he promises there's coming a day, there's going to be a city. You can look forward to it that I am preparing and I will bring back where you will know eternal rest. And I close with this verse from another song. We sang one of John Newton's songs earlier, Amazing Grace. But another verse from one of his other songs, speaking of this city and its impact, knowing what Jesus has done to secure that city and to invite us into it, make us citizens of that heavenly city, Here's the hope. Savior, if of Zion's city I through grace a member am, let the world deride or pity. I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show. 
but solid joys and lasting treasure. None but Zion's citizens know. That's where we're heading. That's what Jesus has secured on the cross. And he offers us even now to get foretastes of that before we get there. Believe that this morning. Believe that for the first time or the thousandth time. But believe that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that despite our own efforts to justify ourselves, make a name for ourselves, and all that we do that even though we weren't there in that day, but all that we have done that has caused you to be hung on that cross, that Jesus, your response to us is, Father, forgive them. Jesus, help us to bask, to recognize, to be cognizant of that even further, the, the depth of the forgiveness that you have offered us by your death and resurrection, that we might be fueled to be able to offer that, to be an alternative, alternative city, to be an altar city, an altar community as Resprez in Madison. That when Madison sees Resprez, the response would be to glorify you and to call on your name. Jesus, help us to believe that this has happened at the cross. And it's with great expectation we look forward to you coming back to see this fully restored in our presence, in our world, in our city. Help us to believe that. For the first time or the thousandth time we pray. For Christ's sake, amen.